We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. From John chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to hand the net in, haul the net in, because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he has, had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, we have sung to you. We have confessed to you. We've prayed to you. 
and now we need to hear from you. Would you help us to believe, every single one of us in this room, help us to believe that we're not here by accident, whether this is our very first time ever in a Christian worship service, whether it has been a long time, years, maybe even decades, since we've been in a church. Whether we do this almost every week, help us to believe we're here because you've brought us here. Give us ears to hear all that you would have to say to us this morning. Speak to us in such a way that our lives would be changed. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, My name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this morning we're actually finishing up one of our, our series. We've been in this series called Encountering the Risen Jesus. And ever since Easter we've been looking at these accounts in the Gospels where people meet the risen Christ. And the question we've been asking is, what difference does the resurrection make in our lives? How does it change our lives? One of the things that I get to do as a minister is I get to officiate weddings. And I have seen a lot of crazy things happen at weddings. I did one wedding where the bride passed out three times in the service. Uh, She threw up in the middle of the wedding. We're literally holding a trash can and she's throwing up into it and passing out. This is not a good start to anyone's wedding. Uh, I've seen a lot of crazy things. The craziest thing I've ever seen, though, was actually at my wedding. Uh, There was a good friend who officiated Katie and I's wedding, and we got to the very end of the service, the part where the minister says, I now pronounce you husband, wife, you know, this is, everybody knows, like, the, the, the wedding is, like, ending at this point, and he goes to say this, and uh, Katie, my wife, looks at him, and I hear her say to him, you forgot to do the vows, and he had totally forgotten the vows, and I had forgotten that he forgot the vows, I'm thinking, like, let's party, you know, And Katie catches it. She says, you forgot to do the vows. And he says, I forgot to do the vows. (laughs) And at this point, people are doing what you're doing. They're laughing. It's a funny moment. But then he starts flipping through his notes. And he says, I did not print the vows. And at this point, everybody's doing what you're doing. They stopped laughing, particularly my mother-in-law. Who is here this morning? Love you, Barb. She's nodding her head. Uh, So at that point, things are kind of falling apart a little bit. And, uh, you know, as as a minister, you have a lot of minister friends. So there were actually two ministers kind of co officiating this wedding. So this guy who'd forgotten the vows looks at the other minister and says, Do you have the vows? And he, who is not going to be shamed in front of all these people, says, that was your job. (laughs) So at this point, the guy puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, out loud, he says, we're just going to have to wing the vows, (laughs) which is like not really a phrase you want to hear at a wedding. We're just going to wing this. But he actually did, he did a really, really good job. Um, but okay, what's the point of the story? The point of the story is always bring your own vows to your wedding. 
The point, no, that is not the point of the story. Uh, here's the point. The point is that vows are to a marriage what the resurrection is to Christianity. No vows, no marriage. No resurrection, no Christianity. One of the things that I hear people say a lot is, you know, I don't really buy this whole idea that Jesus rose from the dead. But I do think that Christianity has some helpful things to offer. How to be a good person. How to care for the poor. How to forgive people who wrong you. If that's where you are this morning, do you know that the Bible itself disagrees with you? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ was not raised from the dead, our faith is futile. He's saying if the resurrection did not happen, Christianity is the biggest hoax that the world has ever known. And what we're doing here this morning is a complete waste of time. And we should all go home and we should never come back. If the resurrection didn't happen, Jesus changes nothing in your life. But if it did happen, it changes everything in your life. It changes everything. So what does this passage in John 21 teach us about how the resurrection changes our lives? Here's what it tells us. It tells us that Jesus is alive and he wants to find you so that he can transform your life by his grace and for his purposes in the world. Let me say that again. Jesus is alive. Amen. Amen. And he wants to find you so that he can transform your life by his grace and for his purposes in the world. So let's just unpack that for a moment. Jesus is alive and he wants to find you. Now, I love this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. The disciples, they are looking for something. But they are not looking for fish, for Jesus. They are looking for fish. They're looking for fish. Jesus is looking for them. And I want you to see the links to which he goes to find them. Look at verse 1. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. All right, now that's important. The Sea of Galilee is 60 to 70 miles north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the last place that they saw him. See, Jesus does not wait for them to come back to Jerusalem and find him. Jesus goes to where they are and he finds them. They do not find Jesus. Jesus finds them. And friends, this is always the case with salvation. It is how it always works. People say, I found God. No, God was never lost. We are lost. Romans 3 says this, no one seeks after God. Please do not think that you are the exception. No one, says Paul. No one seeks after God. We do not seek after God. God seeks after us. We do not find God. God comes to where we are and he finds us. And this is good news. Uh, nine years ago, there was a man in Japan named Yasuo Takamatsu. He was a retired military officer. He took up a new hobby, scuba diving. But it wasn't for fun. Because two years prior to that, in 2011, his wife had been swept away 
in that massive tsunami. And he'd not heard from her since. And he presumed that she was dead, but her body had not yet been found. For two years, he looked for her on land and on the coast and in nearby forests. And then he turned to the sea and he has done hundreds of dives. He was asked, why are you doing this? Why won't you stop and give up the search? And this is what he said. He said, I have no choice but to keep looking. Friends, that is the heart of God. God will not stop looking for you until he finds you. In in his first book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, C.S. Lewis writes about a boy named Shasta. And Shasta lives in this far-off country, but he hears about this wonderful kind of magical land, Narnia, and this great king in it, Aslan, the lion. And he keeps trying to get to Narnia to, 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 to discover this whole new world, but, but everything keeps going wrong. And one day, a voice speaks to him. He doesn't know that it's Aslan, but Shasta starts telling this voice how, how hard it has been for him to escape, how hard it has been for him to get to Narnia. And he says, don't you think that it's such bad luck that I keep running into so many lions? Oh, there was only one lion, said the voice. What do you mean, said Shasta? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced, you, who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. C.S. Lewis, in, 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 in telling this story, he's actually telling his own story. His own journey from atheism to Christianity. Where he realized that he was not trying to find God so much as it was God trying to find him. He started looking back at his life and realizing all of these things that God had orchestrated and that God was after him. And that's the way that it always works. You show up to church looking for God, and you know what you discover? God is looking for you. He's after you. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, do you know what this means? It means that God is seeking you. It means that God wants to find you. See, if you want him, it's because he already wants you. And if you are a Christian, this ought to amaze you. It ought to fill you with such wonder that the creator of heaven and earth has sought you. It would stop at nothing to find you. Jesus is alive and he finds us, but here's the question, why? Why does he find us? And that brings us to the second point. It's so that he can transform our lives by his grace. Now this passage is dripping with grace. First, did you see the very first 
word out of Jesus' mouth in this passage. It's in verses 4 and 5. It says, early in the morning Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends. (laughs) Do you know who he is talking to? He is talking to people who have misunderstood him for three years. He is talking to people who fell asleep on him in his greatest hour of need in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is talking to people who abandoned him at the cross while he was dying. If someone did all of that to you, what would be the first words out of your mouth when you saw them? I mean, I can think of a hundred other names that Jesus might call these guys. But he calls them friends. And he doesn't just call them friends, but when they show up on this shore, you know what they realize? Jesus has started a fire. And there is fish, and there is bread, and Jesus says to them in verse 12, come and have breakfast. Now, we don't appreciate this like we should, because meals for us tend to be short and quick. We eat a lot of them alone and on the go. But that was not the case in the first century. To invite someone to a meal was to invite them into friendship. It was a way of saying, I want to know you. And here's what Jesus is saying to these disciples and to us. He's saying, I know everything about you. I know all the betrayal. I know all the failure. I know all the ways that you have failed me and neglected me and not loved me as you should, but I want to know you, and I want you to know me. I want to be with you, and I want you to be with me. And see, that is called the miracle of grace. You know, the miracle in this passage is not this huge catch of fish. Some of us, we read that, we say, wow, 153 fish. Amazing. No, the miracle of this passage is that Jesus finds them and that he wants to be with them. The miracle is that he wants to know them and the miracle is that he wants to do the same with you and me. The miracle is that there is no sin so great in your life and there is no shame so deep that Jesus does not want to offer his love and grace to you. That's the miracle of grace. And you know what happens when the miracle of grace begins to sink into your life? It changes you. It it, it brings about this radical transformation in your life. And we actually get a case study of that in this passage with Peter. One of the great contrasts in the whole Bible is Peter in John chapter 21 which you read today, and Peter in Luke chapter 5. There are a number of similarities in these two chapters. There's about seven of them. Let me give them to you. Number one, the disciples are in a boat. Number two, they are on the exact same lake. Number three, they are fishing. Number four, they've been fishing all night. Number five, they have caught nothing. Number six, Jesus tells them to throw the net overboard one more time. And number seven, 
they have this enormous catch of fish. All of these similarities, but there is one striking difference between these two chapters. In Luke chapter 5, after Peter sees this enormous catch of fish and he realizes the power and the greatness of Jesus, he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In other words, he wants to get away from Jesus as fast as he can. But do you see what he's doing in this passage? He jumps out of the boat and he starts swimming to Jesus. He wants to get to Jesus as quick as he can. In Luke 5, this is amazing. He sees his failure and he wants to get away from Jesus. But in John 21, he sees even more of his failure. He's just betrayed Jesus. But rather than, rather than wanting to get away from him, he wants to get to him as fast as he can. Now, what's going on here? What's going on is that he's been transformed by the miracle of grace. He's been transformed by the gospel. The gospel gives you an identity like nothing else can. Nothing else in this world. I mean, if you base your identity, your sense of self, your sense of, of worth, I am somebody, on anything that you do or accomplish, your work, your money, your family, your beauty, be, being a good person, if you base it on anything, you will always live either proud or in despair. When you make it, you will look down on others who haven't, but when you fail, you will be crushed. You'll, you'll constantly be comparing yourself to others, and anytime you see someone who's doing better than you, there will be a sense in which you say, depart from me. Let me give you some examples. If you base your identity on beauty, you will scroll through your Instagram feed. And whenever you see someone more beautiful than you, there will be a sense of psychological death. You base it on success, and you'll look around at people who are more successful than you, and it will make your heart sink. Some of us in this room, we have made decisions that have imploded our lives. And we look around at people who have made much, a much less mess of their life. And it kills us. You see, but the gospel gives you an entirely new identity. An identity that is not based on what you do or what you accomplish. But it is based on what Jesus has done. And on what he has accomplished for you. And that means that God accepts you and loves you and welcomes you and delights in you and sees you as perfectly and totally and utterly righteous. And that means that in moments of success, it keeps you from pride and it humbles you because you know you can't take any credit. But in moments of failure, it does the same thing to you that it does to Peter in John chapter 21. Peter sees more of his failure, not less, but he's not crushed. You know why? Because his identity has been restructured by grace. Here's what the gospel can do in your life. It can give you a life where failure does not define you. No, Jesus defines you. Peter's failure does not drive him from Jesus. It drives him 
to Jesus because he's got an identity that is secure in Jesus. And see, this is why God wants to find you. So he can do the same thing in your life. So that you can know how loved you are by him. And how secure you are in him. And how delighted in you are because of him. But that is not the only reason that Jesus wants to find you. It's not just so that he can transform you by his grace. It's so that he can send you out into the world for his purposes. See, Jesus does something really interesting with Peter in this passage at the very end. All the disciples eat with Jesus. And then in verse 12, Jesus pulls Peter aside. Now, if you don't remember Peter's story, Peter stood out a little bit. Because Peter had denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And so if you're Peter and Jesus says, hey, Peter, come here for just a minute. What are you thinking? I mean, you were thinking, is he going to bring it up? Are we going to talk about it? And what every commentator points out is that Jesus doesn't just bring it up, but he actually takes Peter back to his denial in vivid detail. There's a couple things that point, uh, jump out from the text to tell us this. First, in verse 9, it says that Jesus made a fire of burning coals. Why is that significant? The only other place in the Gospel of John where we see a fire is when Peter is warming himself outside of Jesus' trial. And he says, I do not know the man. But then look at this question that Jesus asked Peter. The very first question is in verse 15. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these other disciples? And if you remember, Peter was the one who had said to Jesus the night before his death, even if everyone else falls away, I won't. And then, and then here, look at the last thing Jesus does. Jesus asks him, do you love me three times? Three times. Why does he ask him three times? It's for the three denials. It's for each time that Peter said, I do not know him. I do not know him. I do not know him. Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And you think, man, like, is Jesus a jerk? I mean, why is he doing this? Is he just trying to kind of rub it in to Peter's face? Is he trying to hurt Peter? No, the exact opposite. He's trying to heal him. Jesus knows that we do the same thing that Peter did. We look at our failure. We look at the ways that we've blown it in life. We look at the ways we're not the person we want to be or wish we were. And we say, okay, maybe God can forgive me, but God could never use me. I'm too broken. I'm, I'm too big of a failure. I'm too messed up. See, but Jesus does not come to Peter and say, I forgive you. <laughs> We're good. You can go home now. No, Jesus comes to Peter and he says, Feed my sheep. And he tells him this 
three times. This is Jesus' way of saying to Peter and to us, I don't just want to forgive you. I want to use you for my purposes in the world. It doesn't matter how broken you are. It doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made in life. It doesn't matter how much of a mess you've made of your life. God's ability to use you does not come down to who you are. It comes down to who he is. His determination to use you is not based on how good you are. It is based on how good he is. And God is always good. That is in his nature. He cannot go against it. And so God comes to people like us and he says, I don't want to just forgive you. I want to repurpose your life. And this is why almost every person in the Bible, when they meet God, the first words that God says to them are, go. When Abraham meets God, God says, go. When Moses meets God in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, God says, go to Pharaoh. When Isaiah meets God in the temple, God says, go. The first thing that Jesus, the risen Jesus, says to the women at the tomb is, go and tell the disciples. The last thing that he tells the disciples before he ascends is, go into the nations. Go, go, go. See, God never finds you just for you. It's never just for your sake. God pours out his love and his grace into your life so that he, you might be sent out to live for his purposes in the world. In the late 90s, early 90s, there was a nursing home in upstate New York. About 80 residents in this home. Most of them had dementia. And like many of these homes, it was a very sad place. So they brought in this Harvard-educated doctor. They called him Dr. Bill. They brought him in to see if he could, you know, kind of watch how things worked, see if he could offer some suggestions of how to breathe some, some hope and joy into this place. Dr. Bill took one look, look at, this, at this home and he said, this is not the way that humans are supposed to live. We've got to make some changes. So he gathered all the staff together. And he said, the problem is not that these people need to be more protected from death. He said, they need to be more connected to life. So here's the first thing we're going to do. Everybody, every resident gets a green plant. Every resident gets a plant. So the staff kind of nods their head. That's, okay, that's doable. And then he says, Here, here's what else we're going to do. Let's get a dog. Let's get a dog. Actually, let's get one dog for each floor. We need two dogs. So the staff is kind of nodding a little more hesitantly. And then he says, you know what else we need? Cats. Because not everybody is, you know, not everybody's a dog person. I could make a lot of comments there. I'm not a cat person. But uh, some, people aren't, some people aren't dog people. He said, two cats for every floor. The staff is like, okay, so you want, you want two dogs and you want four cats. He said, yeah, but something is still missing. People need the sounds of life. It sounds like death around here. Well, let's get some birds. Birds? How many birds, Dr. Bill? A hundred birds. 
like, what? He, he eventually wears the whole staff down. Uh, the delivery truck, true story, the delivery truck shows up with 100 parakeets. The problem is that the cages have yet to arrive. Dr. Bill says, not a problem. Set the birds free in the home. All of a sudden, there are birds flying around everywhere. The cats and the dogs are going crazy. The staff is totally overwhelmed. But then the strangest things started to happen. Residents who had not laughed in years began to laugh. People who had been non-communicative began to talk. People that they thought were bedridden and would never walk again began to walk up to the nurse station asking if they could take the dog for a walk. But here was the strangest thing. People stopped dying so much. The mortality rate went down by 15%. The amount of medication that they were prescribing in that home dropped by 60%. And and researchers could not figure it out. They, They said to Dr. Bell, why is this happening? And this is what he said. He said, here's what I think. People need to be connected to something bigger than themselves. They need a cause to live for that is more than not dying. And they need a story to be part of. In the Christian gospel, we have been given the greatest story ever told. We have been invited, you have been invited, I have been invited into a story that is far bigger than ourselves, friends, and that is the story of the kingdom of God. It is a story of a God who is making all things new. It's the story of a God who is pushing back the darkness It's a story of a God who is working for justice for the oppressed and who is bringing hope to the hopeless and is bringing restoration where there is brokenness. And you see, we are invited to live out that story. If you are a Christian, God has called you out of your own story into his story, the story of his kingdom, and to live out that story not just on Sunday mornings, from 10 a.m. to 11.15 a.m., but to live it out in your homes and to live it out in your places of work and to live it out in this church and in our life together and to live it out in this city. See, if you're here this morning and you ever find yourself asking the question of, does life really have any meaning? Does it have any purpose? And if you have begun to sense the emptiness of living for your own comfort and your own career or just your own pleasure and your own possessions, you've begun to sense this is not enough. You know what it means? It means that you are finally getting in touch with reality. Because everything else, every other story that you give your life to will fade away. But the one thing that will never fade away is the kingdom of God. It will last forever. And that is the mission that we are invited into. Now, before you can get on board with that mission, you have to experience God's mission to you. And that is why God invites us to this table week after week.
In John 21, Jesus prepared a meal for the disciples. But at this table, Jesus prepares a meal for us. And this is the most expensive meal you'll ever eat. There's a lot of great restaurants in this city. There's a lot of pricey restaurants in this city. Some restaurants will charge you $30 to get a burger in this city. This right here is the most expensive meal you'll ever meet. It cost Jesus everything. But the wonder of this table is that it cost you and me nothing. It is the table of grace. And in fact, the one requirement of this table is that you bring nothing. The one requirement is that you come saying, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. This is the table of grace. It is a meal for failures. It is a meal that will change your life. It can change your life. And if you've never had it, you can have it today. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the welcome that we receive at this table. A God who welcomes failures. A God who welcomes broken, messy people. A God who welcomes us not because we have it all together, but because we come looking to the one who does. To your son. The only one who deserves to eat with you, but who has come to make a room for us at the table. Lord, give us eyes to see this morning the wonder of this table. Give us eyes to see all that Christ has done for us, whether it is for the first time or the thousandth time. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll come forward to receive communion. We start with the front rows and we work our way to the back. So if you're in one of these side aisles, uh, you can just follow the aisle across from you as we all come down this center aisle uh, right here. As you come to the front, there'll be stations to your left and stations to your right. In the first tray, you'll find bread. If you need a gluten-free option, that's located on each of the white tables up front for you. In the second tray, you'll find red wine. If you're here this morning and you need a non-alcoholic option, there's clear grape juice in the outer ring of each of these trays. And if you get to the station and you're not sure which is which, just ask the person serving you. They'll be happy to tell you. Once you receive the bread and the cup, you can return to your seats using the outside aisles, but hold on to your bread and to the cup as we're going to eat and drink together to signify that we are one family in Christ.
If you're here this morning and you are not convinced of the claims of Christianity, we are so glad that you're here. Uh, We say almost every week, this is a church where you can belong before you believe. That means that this is not a church where you have to pretend to believe something that you don't. To eat this bread and to drink this cup is to say, I, I do believe these things. If that's not where you are this morning, you should, not, you should not eat and you should not drink. You should feel totally free to sit right where you are. This is a place where you can come with all of your questions and all of your doubts and process them at your own pace. So there are prayers printed for you in the back of your worship guide. Use this time to consider the things that you've heard. But if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, friends, it doesn't matter. It does not matter how last week looked for you. It doesn't matter what happened last night. Jesus sees all of it. And he welcomes you. And he invites you. And he wants to feast with you. So come. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. goodness in the garden God is breathing out his glory where the river sings a story of the beauty he has shared with us there's a serpent in the garden he's chasing down creation He is twisting every craving with the fruit of fear And he says, take, take and eat Three little words that turn the whole world upside down
forgiveness by the fire blazing on the shoreline they can't deny the lord's alive their hearts reviving with the rising sun Messiah murdered on the mountain body of Christ, the bread of heaven, take and eat. The blood of Christ, the cup of salvation, take and drink. This table declares to us not only God's love for us, 
but his love for our city and our world. Please join us as we pray together now. Let's pray. Gracious God, you're the father to the fatherless. You sent the lonely in the families. You're the rebuilder of walls and restorer of homes. You call us to defend the cause of orphans. We pray that you will help us do that here in Oakland. We pray for children in foster care. We pray that you show them that you love them, that you understand their pain and that they can trust you as their loving and faithful father. Where there has been abuse, provide protection, healing, and justice. Provide shelter for those who are unhoused. Provide stability for those who have been on the move. Provide families, schools, churches, and friends for every foster child in our city. We pray for biological parents who have lost their children. We pray that you show them that hope is not lost. Help them to see that your grace can free them from past failures. Lead them toward paths of personal growth and reunification with their children. We pray for foster parents who invite children into their families. We pray that you give them endurance and compassion. Help to trust that you are at work in their homes in ways they don't understand. Make their homes a place of peace, where sins are forgiven, grace abounds, and change is always possible. We pray for adults who have been abused or neglected children. Lead them to confess their sin and seek forgiveness from you and from their children. Help them to see the hurt that they have caused. Give them the resources they need to break the cycle of abuse. We pray for child welfare professionals. Give them the wisdom to navigate difficult situations. Protect them from burnout as they face overwhelming needs. Use them to make a difference in the lives of foster children in Oakland. We pray for ourselves. Help us to become advocates for children in foster care system. Help us show the love of Jesus to foster children in our city. Use us to pro provide support to our overwhelmed foster care system. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>